What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. That's the hymn from the pen of 16th century reformer Martin Luther. To Jordan came the Christ our Lord. The church prepares to mark the baptism of Jesus. It sits here in the Christmas season. It also belongs, well, in the next season, the Epiphany season. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Back live on this Tuesday afternoon, January the 2nd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. Go through listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line. And then Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel joins us to teach a Sunday school lesson on the three men in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. Why do we observe and celebrate Christ's baptism? Well, it's a feast that kind of fell by the wayside for a long time. It used to be rolled together with the Epiphany and also with the wedding at Cana, kind of all of these great revelations of Jesus. And they slowly kind of got spread out over a few Sundays. And I think with the three-year lectionary in particular, both with the Roman Catholic usage of it, but especially here what we've done in Lutheran Service Book, we really have given more primacy to this. It's not as if Luther, for example, didn't preach on the baptism of Jesus or speak about it frequently, but it didn't always have this prominence as being its own Sunday. And that's what we've done now. So the Sunday after Epiphany, we've lost, unfortunately, the boy Jesus in the temple, which used to be the first Sunday after Epiphany. But now it's always, at least in the three-year lectionary particularly, the baptism of our Lord and seen then from all three angles in the Synoptic Gospels. What's so significant about it? I suppose we'll get to that today in the Collect. But why do we call Jesus the Christ, which means the anointed one, and where does that anointing happen? This is the place where most people would point to. But also we find it so significant because Jesus' baptism is unique. He is not one who is a sinner who needs to be forgiven. And yet by his baptism, baptism as we know it comes to be what it is. The direction goes the other way with Jesus, that he is making baptism what it is for all Christians. And we get a glimpse of that with this revelation of the Father and the Spirit there declaring Christ to be the beloved Son in the Jordan River. Give us an overview. We're going to be looking at Mark's account. Yeah, so the baptism across the three years of the three-year lectionary 
is pretty much the same. The gospel is the same, except, of course, from the different gospel readings. The epistles the same. The psalm, all the propers and collects are the same. So the only thing to distinguish it is the Old Testament prophecy. So we'll focus on that and what it leads us into, but also the distinctive characteristics of the accounts from those three gospels. So this year in Mark, that's what year B is devoted to, we get kind of a three-part reading. First, we have a recount of John the Baptist's ministry. And we've actually already heard this. We're just going to entirely repeat what we've heard on Advent 2. Then we're going to hear just in two brief verses, two sentences, the account of Jesus' baptism from Mark, how the heavens are opened, how the Son sees the Father and his voice comes and says, this is my beloved Son. And then lastly, we're just going to have leading us into the temptation out of that. In fact, we're going to end up repeating the whole baptism narrative here from Mark also when we get to Lent 1 and hear about the temptation of Jesus that follows immediately after it. You wanted to make reference to Genesis 1 here. Yeah, I wanted to point out those two other things that are different. So we mentioned Mark's uniqueness compared to Matthew and Luke. Genesis 1 is going to be our Old Testament reading, and its focus is kind of twofold. We're going to hear just the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of Genesis, that God created the heavens and the earth, that everything was formless and void, and yet the Spirit, it says, is hovering over the waters. That's going to be fruitful for us as we look especially at our psalm today, but finally coming to the gospel where the Holy Spirit descends like a dove over the water in the Jordan and the sun that's there. And that we'll see just by looking at the very first act of creation, let there be light, and there was, that it is the Lord's word that is the means by which creation is made, or maybe we should say the mode, or, well, I think we'll want to say the agent by which it is made, that Jesus is the word come and made flesh that we're celebrating here in Christmas and Epiphany, and we're going to see him attested by that very same spirit in the waters. As for the remaining propers, then I think we can see some connecting things. We'll have the Lord as the master of creation in particular in our psalm, Psalm 29, But then also we'll speak a little bit about what this has to do with us. And I think we'll see that as a theme throughout all of it. Not only will the baptism have something to say very particularly about Jesus, but we're going to do something that I think Lutherans uh, today are often hesitant to do, which is to take something that is speaking about Jesus and apply it in some way to us as Christians. It's a move that's always dangerous. But we're going to see, I think, especially in our epistle, why this is necessary and why then baptism, which Jesus undergoes in this kind of monumental official way as the Christ, has a continuing and ongoing significance for us, his Christians, who are restored and regenerated in our baptism, as uh, Romans 6 is going to teach us. So take us into the intro, which is Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2. The antiphon from Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
So Isaiah uh, 42, just the very first phrase there about the servant who is chosen, the one in whom the Lord delights, kind of directly quoted almost in the gospel, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. And that actually is the Old Testament reading in year A, so it might sound familiar to our listeners. It's paired then with Psalm 2, which is a prophetic voice speaking about Christ, speaking about this relationship between the Lord and his Son, I suppose that already takes some explanation, but we see that it's more than just him addressing David as his anointed one, as his king, but in fact addressing one who is going to have utter dominance over all of the nations, which of course David came to a temporary peace in his time, subduing the nations surrounding Israel. But he was not the man of peace in the way that Jesus is. So we see already that this is foretelling the Son himself. And also then this prophetic voice that we hear in Psalm 2 really is echoed and highlighted by the Father's own word, both today at the baptism of Jesus, but also at the transfiguration, which in our Lutheran church we celebrate here at the end of Epiphany season. The rest of the psalm, Psalm 2 then, is centered on our Lord's kingship. And as with many prophecies about the Messiah, about the King of Israel, it all seems to be cast in the language of conquest. So the Messiah is going to come. He's going to subdue his enemies by force. He's going to have this rod of iron. He's going to break people and subdue the nations. But I think it would be helpful if we took that question there that follows on the heels of, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Take it a little more literally. So what is the father permitting the son to ask? Ask me, he says, and I will give them as your heritage. Well, where is it that Jesus, the Son of God, has asked for the Gentiles? Well, literally, he said, Father, forgive them, both to Jews and Gentiles who are putting him to death, for they know not what to do. Or when he said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and I also must speak my words to them in John's gospel. Or maybe when he said, you know, if you don't believe in me, I can raise up children of Israel from these stones, which already seems to be another rebuke of the children of Israel. All of it to say the Lord's way of being a king and of ruling over the Gentiles is not going to be through military force, but in fact through conversion, through letting them hear his word and be brought to him. Now, here in this epiphany season, especially in kind of the popular understanding, we've already had the kings, the Gentile kings, those wise men come from the east. They've been willing to be much wiser maybe than the Israelite king who was already there. And so from the Gentiles, we're seeing this come to fruition. But the promises here are just as clear as Paul makes them in Romans, that the Lord has greatly blessed his own, but that they should be warned as well, because the blessing of the Lord is because he delights in his people and because they take refuge in him. So if they don't take refuge of him, if they defy him, if they, like Herod, stay behind and scheme against him, if they, like the priests, know where all the prophecies are, but don't do anything with them, don't believe them, don't take them to heart and to action, well, then the Jews end up making themselves as foolish as those derided Gentiles. We don't get to hear that famous verse from Psalm 2 today, but he says the Lord holds them in derision. The Lord laughs at those who despise him, who don't heed his word. Uh, and so the call then we see, just being hinted at so far in Epiphany's season, is already much greater than just to the people of Israel as an inheritance uh, but to all people who will come and hear his word and believe it. 
What is the collect and what would you draw out of it? Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, you proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Make all who are baptized in his name faithful in their calling as your children and inheritors with him of everlasting life through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. So this collect, like most, are Trinitarian. It ends with that Trinitarian termination. That's a feature that's back again now that we're done with Advent's direct petitions to the Son to stir up his power and come. But today I think it takes on a special significance uh, because the Trinity is very famously revealed to us at the baptism of Jesus. He is visible, as it were, uh, with the Father's voice being heard, with the Son present in the water, and with the Spirit lighting upon him. Now, there's two very bold statements in our collect today. The first is that the Father's, you are my son today, I've begotten you, is not just a statement to Jesus, but is a proclamation. That is, it's a public attestation. It's not a private vision. It's not a revelation only to a few people, uh, but it's for all to hear and therefore to take to heart. What does that mean? Well, this speaks strongly, I think, against the idea of adoptionism, which is to say that Jesus went through his early life as an ordinary person until through a series of events, he came to be convinced or God, in fact, made it happen that he became his son. I suppose that Psalm 2 is open to misunderstanding there with that word today. Today I have begotten you, as in on the day of his baptism. No, the point is, he's begotten him from eternity. Today he is acknowledging this before all the world so that they also would know and believe that this is indeed his son, the one that he's very pleased with. Now, it also implies that we should take note of it, and therefore that it's not only a fact that we have to, maybe by force, come to acknowledge begrudgingly, but it is to be one that we should believe and take to heart for our benefit. That's really what the end of Psalm 2 says. There's a warning to those who reject him. Serve him with fear. His wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the son lest he be angry. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So therefore, when the father announces this, it is so that we would take refuge in him too. It's a proclamation of his beloved son for us, therefore. Also then it says that the anointing that makes Jesus the Christ, in fact, is this baptism. This is where you anointed him with the Holy Spirit, it says in our collect. So Jesus is called the Christ. This is the Greek version of Messiah, the anointed one, sometimes used for kings, but certainly for a specific office. And this one is the Messiah, the anointed one that comes from the Lord to fulfill all those promises from the Old Testament. Where is it then that the oil of anointing is poured on Jesus. I suppose you could find it maybe in that woman who comes and anoints him, and Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing, who anoints me before my death, anoints me for burial. I think that's actually a very good point because Jesus coming to earth to be our Savior is not apart from, but is entirely focused in his death for our salvation and his resurrection. I suppose you could also argue that the Spirit comes on him in all sorts of ways also, maybe not at a particular visible moment, but is present with him always. But I think it is pointed that there's both a baptism here, so there's a pouring of something, water in this case, but also, and more unique, that there is this office-doting gift of the Spirit, that the Spirit, in the form of a dove even, comes to rest on Jesus. We're going to talk more about this when we get to the gospel reading. But all to say, this colleague urges us to be bold to identify this as the moment 
uh, where Jesus is anointed to be that Christ, attested to publicly as the one who's going to do all of this, do all the things that John the Baptist has been preaching about him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why we generally mark this as kind of the beginning, so to speak, the kickoff of his public ministry. He goes into the temptation in the wilderness, after which he comes back and begins performing miracles, calling disciples, and preaching. This collect, which is quite rich, even though it's condensed, it does also apply all of these activities to us. In a way, it assumes a transition that's very important. So let's just say it out loud and be clear about it. The transition is this. We see that Christ is proclaimed the Son, and he's called into an office in order to effect our salvation. That's what happens at his baptism. And by holy baptism, together with all the promises that are given to faith, we have the benefits of that singular work of Christ Jesus. So that's the transition, that Jesus in his baptism is now called and is publicly attested as the one who's going to be the Christ. And in our reception of Christian holy baptism, we receive all of the benefits that he alone has accomplished. In this way, then, our baptism, though also, that's what the Collect says, is a declaration and a calling. It's a declaration of our sonship. Now we are sons also. Now we are children of God. We are inheritors. We are heirs of his kingdom. And we are also called into our own office, not offices plural. This is not speaking about the vocations that Christians have as father, mother, ruler, or citizen, etc. But it's speaking about this singular and common Christian calling, which is to be that, to be a Christian, to be one who follows Christ Jesus, who believes in him, and that is to be an heir of eternal life. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We'll get into the Old Testament reading for the baptism of our Lord in Genesis chapter 1 next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. When pastors talk about us, they say ad crucem. When laity mention us, they say ad crucem. When telemarketers call us, they say ADC Rucam. But a Luther Rose by any name will smell as sweet. Ad crucem is the place to go. For greeting cards and artwork, jewellery and ornaments, housewares, church certificates, church banners, and much more, visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. 
Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, you mentioned this Old Testament reading briefly before Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The deep and the formlessness of the world or the earth or the universe before it is created and defined by God's word and his creation, they're described here as waters. This seems to be kind of an appeal to something we could understand, that it was chaotic and formless. But what does that actually mean? Well, I guess maybe it's like an analogy that here's the water, because it seems as if the Lord is creating out of nothing all the rest of these things, not as if he had water as a starting material. Nevertheless, how fruitful it is and how interesting that it pauses to take mention that the Spirit is there and that he is even described as hovering over the face of the waters. This then is recalled, or is perhaps you might say placed there by the Lord through his Spirit in advance of what we see in today's gospel reading in Christ Jesus being attested to as the Son of God by the Spirit hovering also over the waters. Now, many church fathers in the past have noted that we have a glimpse of the Trinity here right in Genesis chapter 1. So we have God speaking. This is the Father. We have uh, his spirit hovering over those waters, and we have his eternal and creating word, the voice. God said, let there be, and there is. This is made clear and entirely visible to us at the baptism of Jesus in the gospel today, where the voice of the Father is heard pointing to his Son on whom the Spirit hovers. Now, hearing about light, this also brings in a long Epiphany Revelation theme that we've maybe glimpsed already in the readings just from the past couple days. It also, though, echoes what we heard on Christmas Day where John himself, the evangelist, was pulling on this passage from Genesis 1, that just as the light came into the world by the word of God, so Jesus, the word made flesh, is the light of God coming into the world, dispelling all darkness. Our hymns make much of this in order to understand this as his salvation that he is bringing to cast away all works of darkness, to destroy all sin and its devastating effects in human life. We also want to see then that, as we mentioned before, it is by the word of God and its power that creation is made. God, in all all of the days of creation speaks and it happens just as he says. This observation is so profitable for us for a few reasons. The first is that what we just have the first day of here, the creation of the world in six 24-hour literal days, 
out of nothing by the word of God speaking alone. This is a great miracle, to be sure it is. Sometimes it's very difficult for us in our modern wisdoms and knowledge to believe this. But we see that it is by the word of God, this singular power that's much greater and beyond us, that this happens. And it's important to see that the word of God is common to all of the Lord's miracles. So the very same miracle is what's happening in faith when we, by his word, by his spirit at work in that word, believe in him. So his word comes, it creates something out of nothing in us also. It creates faith where there was formerly nothing but a dead, sinful, unbelieving, even hostile heart to him, and he brings it to life. That makes it very easy for us to understand, I think, the sacrament of holy baptism where water is charged with doing such amazing things as washing away sins, making us heirs of God, forgiving us, bringing us new life. These are the sorts of things that you would not necessarily ascribe to any human creation or any creation at all of God, but only to God himself. How can this be then? Well, because the power of baptism is not in the water alone or in the church's use of it, but it is that his word is attached to it, that he ties his very name to it, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that, just as in creation, just as in all faith, that is why it does what he says. What would you say about the confluence with Epiphany in this respect? Sure. Well, I think we've already seen this in the Epiphany itself. We know that the wise men are are brought by something very strange. It seems to be a unique cosmic event that the Lord caused to happen, a miracle in all of the sense of that word, to have this star that would lead them in some way to Jerusalem, to find where you'd expect a a Jewish king to be born, and yet it doesn't get them there. In fact, when they get there, they find the bums on the throne and the priests that are very uninterested and weren't expecting this at all, but they know where the prophecy is. They go there. They pull out this old, discarded, taken-for-granted prophecy about how, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's not the star that gets them there. It's the Word of God that does that thing, even that word of God that's ignored by the people to whom it was given, but gladly believed and treasures and and taken to heart and action by the wise men. This is the insight that Lutherans always make. I don't think it is intended to be unique to us. Uh, We think everybody else should join us in it, and we don't find it to be unique in the history of the Christian church. But it is the continual emphasis that the, the operative matter in all things spiritual Another way to say it would be the way that the Holy Spirit is at work is always by the Word of God. That's the operative and effective source of everything that we have. It's true of the world itself, as we see in creation, but it's also true in all matters of salvation and sanctification, that his Word is the means by which the Holy Spirit is at work in us to do it all. You mentioned before the psalm for this day, Psalm 29. How does it read? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. 
The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord enthroned is king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So this psalm obviously cares about the voice of the Lord, that it keeps repeating that phrase over and over and over again. And what is it that the voice of the Lord does? All sorts of things, right? Powerful things. It moves the world. It deals in creation. Uh, it brings forth new creation. It even makes all the animals get pregnant and give birth. It's like flaming fire, all of these magnificent, fantastical things. There's some evidence that scholars have found that this seems to be borrowed almost or imitative of pagan Canaanite psalms and songs and maybe is an attempt to mock them by touting not their gods but touting this true Lord who is the Lord of creation and that he's able to do all the same things that their gods and their fantastical stories have done except he does it simply with his mere word. And yet he's not known by all those other nations. He's known by his people who are blessed with his peace. So obviously our connection is verse 3, the antiphon, that the voice of the Lord again is over the waters, that he is the Lord over many waters. That's perfect over the waters of Christ's baptism. For me, though, I would say the end of the sonnet, if we were to make this an English poem, would definitely be verse 9. After all of these amazing, powerful signs, kind of like that star, that's not the place you find the Lord. It's not the place you find his people proclaiming his glory. They do it in the temple. They do it in his holy place, the place where he has promised to personally be present, to meet them, and to meet them not for any old purpose like powerful destruction, but to meet them for blessing and peace. That's where the sacrifices are offered. That's where his temple is, where his glorious presence in the cloud is seen. This then is an indication to us to be looking for the place where the glory of God is, where his spirit comes to rest, where his word is heard, where the Lord utters the voice of benediction and says, I am well pleased not to give up all of Jesus' ministry, but we find that here in the baptism today with Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is the place where my glory dwells. This is my new temple where the atoning sacrifice is made, my beloved son. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, and we'll get into the epistle reading in Romans 6 next. Listen to the best of the church's Christmas music during the entire Christmas season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. During the 12 days of Christmas, Lutheran Public Radio, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. 
Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Here at Elm Grove Evangelical Lutheran Church, you'll find folks just like you, sinners in need of what only Christ can give, the full forgiveness of all of our sins. In a world where change turns things upside down, we serve a Lord who never changes and who has promised to be with us always until the very end of the age. If you find yourself in the Milwaukee suburbs, look us up. Elm Grove Evangelical Lutheran Church is the only Lutheran church in Elm Grove, Wisconsin. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. In a world full of turmoil, many use forgiveness as a coping mechanism without really understanding what true forgiveness is. You can learn what forgiveness from Christ looks like and how he forgives his people in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. You'll find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order Unforgivable, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, The Baptism of Our Lord. The epistle for this coming Sunday is the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our gospel, when we come to it, will give us the brief version of John's ministry again that's centered in particular in Mark's gospel account in confessing sins, in receiving a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The other Gospels also speak about bearing fruits in keeping with repentance and the change of life that results from the ministry of John, from that forgiveness of sins. The purpose of confessing, then, is not to continue in them, see, but to be rid of those sins. That doesn't come from the 
confessing them and getting off your chest, but it comes from the absolving that is to be connected with that. Now, Romans 6 is really building on this and showing what baptism indicates. That's the place that Luther put it in the small catechism. What does baptism indicate about us, the daily life of drowning the old Adam? That we have already died to sin in baptism. That means that every single day that we wake up, we can't find our day's life and continuance in sin anymore. Because that's yesterday. That's put to death. And if you find it again, stamp it out. Our baptism is called such a death because it joins us to Jesus. It connects us to the saving work of Christ himself. His death, what did it do? It destroyed sin. Thus, we die to sin also when we receive that salvation. And his rising was to new life and eternal life, showing him to be powerful over death. Well, thus we also rise, both spiritually now and physically at the last day, to a life that is not bound to the dying and deadly things of sin in this life. It's important to see that, that Romans 6 has both our eternal last day resurrection in mind. We will be united with him in a resurrection like his also, but also the life that should be in keeping with that that begins already today. That is a life that is not bound by sin. This is the sort of freedom that Christ has set us free for. It's a freedom from the sins that once bound us. It's not freedom from all constraints in some kind of abstract way. In fact, if you want to call, uh, speak in those terms of bound and free, we're free in regards to sin, as Paul says elsewhere, but we are very much bound as regards the Lord. We are bound to him. We are joined up with him. We're connected to him. And that's a very good thing if he's our savior, if he's committed to us as he's shown in his life and his death and his resurrection. We're bound to something entirely new in him. We're following after him. We're bound to his course and even to his position. We're going to be sons, as we've already prayed in the college. We're going to be heirs in his father's kingdom. Therefore, we are constantly to resist temptations to become bound again instead to what was old, to what was enslaving, to what is deadly, that is sin. If I could take just a quick moment, I think it's helpful to speak about what is the relationship between baptism and confession and absolution. Now, confession and absolution is one of the parts of the catechism. Usually we call it number five. The questions that we have from Luther are somewhat a later edition. They weren't in his first edition, although they're acknowledged to be truthful and faithful to Luther's teaching. They were sometimes, though, entirely omitted from American small catechism editions, which is a real shame. We've got maybe extra time to make up because of that. In fact, even the part that is absolutely and undeniably genuinely Martin Luther's writing, which is the little short form of how to do confession absolution, that was almost always omitted and sometimes still is omitted from small catechism editions. And that's a real shame, I think, because that genuine part taught us what this looks like. And that's the way, in fact, Luther preferred to speak about confession and repentance was to say, well, let me just give you an example. You'll have to be sure that it doesn't become a law or a rule that you have to follow. But I think by seeing it in action, you will understand what it means better. That was Luther's way of teaching it. 
our catechisms then count confession and the office of the keys that goes with it as that fifth part. And that placement is very helpful, I think, for the Christian's thinking and use of confession as well as of baptism. So first of all, we see that confession comes before the last part, the Lord's Supper. Confession absolution is a great preparation for receiving the Lord's Supper. It makes sense that it should come before it in the scheme of the catechism. So also the keys, which are summarizing all pastoral care's work, summarizes the institution, the definition of what the church's ministry is, namely to forgive the sins of those who are penitent and to call those impenitent to repentance. It can all be boiled down in their most concentrated form, so to speak, as to absolve someone, to say, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Preaching could also be included in that, not to say that preaching doesn't do what Paul does here in Romans 6 to teach extensively on some part of doctrine, but certainly our preaching is also to be absolving, to be proclaiming the gospel that forgives sins and announces the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Above all, though, that fourth part of baptism, which quotes from Romans 6 here, that indicates the daily ongoing significance of our one-time event of baptism, it leads beautifully into the fifth part of confession and absolution. And really, it's, I think, a concrete example of what the fourth part of baptism kind of describes, and even Romans 6 describes in kind of a fanciful, maybe not so concrete way. But this is how you will daily drown, how you will repent, how you will deal with the sins that still want us to have our life in them instead of in Jesus, though we're supposed to be dead to them by now. Confession absolution, that's how. This is the concrete tires on the road thing to do. It's not a work. It's not something that we can merit or accomplish simply by going through the motions, nor is it the only form to use. Luther was very clear about that when he put that in the small catechism in the first place. The meaning of repentance, this goes right back to his 95 Theses, the meaning of repentance can't be exhausted in the phrase, do penance, as in, go to confession. But true penitence, true confessing and receiving forgiveness, having contrition and believing in the forgiveness of sins for the sake of the gospel, this is what this sideline part of the catechism is trying to teach us about through a concrete action. So I really do advise our listeners, start with the concrete here, especially if it seems unclear to you in any way, and then this practice of confession absolution will help you. It will help you to see that it's not just its own thing, another in a list of six things that I have to do maybe, but it's simply the daily or the monthly or however frequently repeated way of living in our baptisms. That Baptism is only given to us once in our life, but the daily living in it, dying and rising in Christ Jesus, putting away the old Adam, rising to newness of life, confessing our sins, being forgiving and living from that forgiveness, that is practiced and continually. So that baptism, or confession I should say, is just a return to baptism. And that's exactly the way that our Augsburg Confession speaks about repentance and confession and baptism. We are looking forward to the baptism of our Lord according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. When we come back, the gradual, the verse, and the gospel reading, that's Mark's account of Jesus' baptism.
If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. On this Tuesday, January the 2nd, we're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, Pastor Sean Denzer, is our guest. Sean, what are the gradual and verse for this coming Sunday? Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. The gradual, which goes for the whole season of Epiphany, reminds us we shouldn't forget that Epiphany is about all nations. It's about the Gentile missions, that theme that runs all the way from the the kings and the wise men all the way through this season. Also, that that feast sets the rhythm for the whole season that follows it, something common in the Christian church year. Now, okay, so the glory of the Lord is being revealed. We heard some of that on Christmas. That continues through the epiphany, right, revelation of his glory. It's a glory, though, that's not known in mighty acts of violence, but in his mercy. Great is his steadfast love toward us. That's what endures forever with him. And to this, all peoples are invited. That's what this means. Praise and offerings are received by him. What an amazing thing that, as we heard in Psalm 29, it seems as if the people of Israel are the only ones who recognize and show up at his temple. But now in the New Testament, those promises are coming true that this is for all people. We begin to see that too. 
The temple language is there, a message of welcome and reception so that all peoples may have fellowship with this Lord and his glory and his blessings. We should see that image of fellowship with God as not being in opposition to his atonement, not being in opposition to his justification by faith and our freedom from sin, like we heard about in Romans 6, but entirely connected with it. Our Lord's salvation embraces all of these pictures of what is going on, so that by the forgiveness of sins, we are reconciled to him, we have fellowship with him, etc., and so forth. The verse, then, is the key verse from our gospel, the voice of the Father speaking to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's the most intimate fellowship, I suppose, with obvious benefits, the father and son relationship, the relationship of an heir to the one who is the master of the kingdom. Now, this statement needs to be understood first and foremost about Christ Jesus, but I also want our listeners to see how this is to be applied to us as well. It is to be applied to the hearers on account of Jesus' baptism. So let's walk through this a little bit. You are my son, and with you I am well pleased. That's a theological statement. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And his person is not man only. He is true God, right? There's a personal union. So we always speak about Christ in two ways, his person and his work. He's the Son of God. What about his work? We have that here too. He has a work to do. He has an office to do. And the Lord is pleased with him so that he is now calling him into that office of the Christ. And the Lord is pleased with him in the doing of the deeds of that office. As John's gospel makes abundantly clear, Jesus is always saying, I have work to do, I have food to eat, and it's to do the will of my Father, and the will of my Father is to be lifted up so that I can draw all people to myself. The Son delights to do the will of his Father, as Hebrews says, quoting the psalm, which is to work our salvation, to be our substitute, to call sinners to himself. And then how can we and ought we apply this to us? If this is speaking about Jesus theologically, we don't really want to be anthropological about this, do we? Well, it's true for us in Christ and on account of him. We are made sons, as we heard so explicitly in the readings and in the hymns of the Sunday after Christmas, that a great exchange has happened, that we are now heirs of God's kingdom, that we are declared righteous in Christ Jesus and thus are well-pleasing to God by faith. So absolutely this has to be a statement about Jesus. But then for all those who trust in him and who believe him, all those who become themselves sons of God by believing in his name— Now we are the ones to whom the Father says, you also have become my beloved Son, and in Christ I am well pleased with you also. That brings us to the gospel, Mark's account of the baptism. Read it for us. Beginning at verse 4 of the first chapter, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We spoke already at length about John's ministry on that second Sunday of Advent. Its repetition here, though, I think suggests that some continuity should be seen. I find that plainest, at least in these points of continuity, that it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what John's baptism is said to be. It's also what we understand Christian baptism to be, at least as it regards us. In that respect, Christian baptism and John's are not too much different. What is different, and he says this, the one who comes after me is what makes it different. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. We know the Christ who has affected this forgiveness by his death. That's the power of baptism. As Second Peter says, his death and his resurrection Paul says that also. That's what we're joined to in baptism, as we heard in Romans 6. Now, why, in Mark's very short version, do we not hear about John's hesitancy and his objection? That seems like a very important point. Well, I think it's here. It's just veiled behind the scenes. So, if the baptism is said to be plainly, more plain than the other Gospels, for repentance and for forgiveness, we know that Jesus needs neither of these things. He is baptized then not to receive what baptism might give to him, and certainly gives to us, but he is baptized to define what baptism is and to give it its power. Thus, his baptism is the occasion for this miraculous and defining event where the Father's voice is heard, where the Spirit descends on him visibly as a dove, and where it is publicly proclaimed that he is called, that for anyone who has ears to hear, this is the Christ and he's come to do his work. So John's the lesser one. His ministry is one of attestation always, but Christ is the greater one who follows him. His ministry is the one that affects God's kingdom. That is what God is pleased with his work, and here it's beginning today. What would you say about the hymn of the day, which is, To Jordan Came the Christ Our Lord? This is Luther's hymn. It is maybe not as well known, but I'd urge you to take it up and maybe try to learn it. It has a really haunting tune, actually. And it is beautiful in its retelling of the simple story of the baptism of Jesus, but adding in all these things kind of all under the heading of pay attention. So that's what we'll hear is said about Jesus by the Father at his transfiguration. Not only that he's my son whom I'm pleased, but you should listen to him. Luther kind of applies that here to the baptism also. And then says, as you see all of these things happening to Christ in his baptism, recognize how, not obviously in the same way, since we are sinners, uh, not the Son of God, but in a similar way and something that is true on account of Christ fulfilling his mission, how everything that is said of him is now said of us through this great exchange. So if he's the Son, We now are also declared to be sons and heirs of God. If the whole Trinity is present, what do you think it means that we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That the triune God is assuring us with all of his promises that we belong to him. That sin and death are put away, as Romans 6 says. That he has pleasure with us now also on account of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Luther then kind of attaches to it something from Matthew 28, 
go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right? That the whole message of the church, both in its public preaching and in every Christian's sharing of the beautiful news of salvation is bottled up in the promises that baptism gives. In some ways, that's seen here in Jesus' baptism quite clearly, whereas the words that he gives us are so simple, right? That it's for the forgiveness of sins, that it's to put his name on it. But we see then that we also are declared to be the sons of God, the heirs of God also at our baptisms. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you. You're welcome. When we come back on this Tuesday, January the 2nd, listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line, then Pastor Tom Baker will walk us through Daniel 3 and the story of the three men in the fiery furnace. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. What makes Christ our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.